Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Objects do have this dual function, and that is they open your eyes to the world you never imagined, and they're also products of a time and a place, and they have a life that goes throughout its history. That's Dr. Vishaka Desai, Senior Advisor for Global Affairs to the President of Columbia University, Chair of the Committee on Global Thought and Senior Research Scholar in Global Studies at the School of International and Public Affairs. She previously served as President and CEO of the Asia Society, a global organization dedicated to strengthening partnerships among peoples of Asia and the U.S. from 2004 through 2012. Before joining the Asia Society in 1990, Dr. Desai was at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston as a curator for Indian and Southeast Asian art and as the head of public programs and academic affairs. She has taught at Columbia University, Boston University, and the University of Massachusetts, where she was given a tenured appointment. She currently serves as the sole female independent director on the corporate board of Mahindra & Mahindra, one of the five largest global companies in India, along with several other boards. She holds a BA in political science from Bombay University and an MA and PhD in Asian art history from the University of Michigan, along with six honorary degrees from American universities and other honors too numerous to mention. Today, we'll touch on her new book to be published next week, titled World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings. Vishaka, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Max. Oh, it's a pleasure. I wanted to start with a topic that's a cheerless one, which is the unfolding COVID crisis in India. What are you hearing? What are you expecting the next few months to be like? You know, I have to say what is most disturbing about the crisis in India as it's unfolding is that it was avoidable in the sense that it really has to do with political leadership and mm-hmm. decisions made that actually required that people were not careful. When it seemed that everything was going well, and I can tell you from talking to my own family that by end of February, beginning of March, people were feeling good, the vaccination had begun, and they were feeling that the things were really getting better and that they would be able to handle this. And at the same time, the political leaders so quickly opened up big campaign rallies and having Mm. these big religious festivals, all just for the hubris of the leadership. And at the same time, not understanding or not paying attention to science, saying that new variants and mutants were developing. Mm -hmm. So what's upsetting is that when it looked like things were going in the right direction, People opened up too quickly, too much, and not paying attention. So it's a trifecta of deadly variant that is 100 times more powerful than even the UK variant, Mm. political decision, and social practices. All three together within a week to 10 days just completely created super spreader events. And I think that it is going to take a while before things actually uh, calm down because yeah. right now it isn't just the COVID crisis, but it's the oxygen crisis. And therefore, people are dying because they're not getting enough oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just so upsetting to me because 
At the same time, I also understand that this is not just an India problem. This is really a global problem in that India happens to be the largest vaccine producer in the world. And they are not able to keep up with the demands and the deals they made with Germany, with France, with Bangladesh. So what's going to happen? In other words, there's a lesson also for other cities and countries and nations all over the world. And that is that if you open too soon, if you don't pay attention to science, if you do things for political gains, just know that you can pay deeply. Yeah. And the price is high. Vishaka, looking back in time to happier days, would you share with us how you got started in the museum field? Well, you know, the first question you asked about India and the second question you asked about how I got started in the museum field has some connection, mm-hmm. some relationship. Uh, let me explain why. Because what I think about COVID is that this idea that no person is an island, no country is an island unto itself. You have to think about yourself relationally. And I learned that message so very powerfully when I first started, believe it or not, as a dancer in Cleveland, at the Cleveland Museum, at the age of 21, just coming back after spending an exchange year in the States when I was 17. And I was a political science major. I was very, very concerned about the intersection between politics and culture that actually came of a, I came of age in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And I got a job at the Cleveland Museum because somebody saw me dancing and talking about dance and sculpture relationship. And that was the head of education at the Cleveland Museum of Art when Sherman Lee was the director. My first job was to work with fifth graders from East Cleveland Public Schools in a very special program to work with them uh, for a whole day, one day a week for six weeks. When I first met these students and I had worn my sari, I thought that I would just kind of get them excited about meeting somebody very different. And I asked them if they could guess where I was from and they had no idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no idea. This is more than 50 years ago, mind you. I began to talk about that I was Indian, and they said, what kind of Indian? Are you a Hopi? Are you a Navajo? And I said, (laughs) no, no, no. I'm the real Indian from India. And they said, where is that? And then from there, we went to the dancing Shiva, the Nataraj statue in the Cleveland Museum, which is one of the finest collection of Asian art, which, of course, I didn't know anything about. I started working with them, with that sculpture, dancing in the galleries and talking about what that was. And I have to tell you that six weeks later, these kids were talking to those sculptures as if they were their friends. Mm. And they were making stories. They knew India from the back of their palm. They were so excited. So what I learned from that was not just the beauty of the object, not just the history of that piece as a specific moment in time in India, but the power of art that could both transcend geography and history to connect to people who didn't know anything about that part of the world, but were excited 
to learn about it because they actually engage with it personally. So it was really the power of potential power of institutions to make a difference in the life of people to open the world's imagination and connect with things that were so far removed from their experience and yet they became their friends. So for me, it was that idea of art and making museums as institutions of change that really interested me about the museum. And then I decided, okay, if I'm going to do this, I better actually get a degree and understand what this is. And then when I, when right. I went on for my master's and PhD, but it was really with the potential of art to make a difference in the society that excited me. And so much of your recollections just now, the texture of them are found in your remarkable new book. Tell us a bit about what led you to write this book. You know, I started writing that book when uh, I was asked to think about, gee, can you talk about this idea of both being an Indian and American? And I started thinking, working with students that I do now at Columbia University, um, they all lived in this kind of a local and global world at the same time, Mm -hmm. because that they are who I call global natives. You know, the world is in their little palm, in their smartphone, Mm -hmm. and they can access the world quickly within seconds, no matter where they are. And so it interested me when they asked me questions about how do I get to be so passionate about things global? At a time when global was already becoming a cliched word, a word that was seen as Mm anti-national, anti-local, right? The global sort of sitting out there, a little bit more Goldman Sachs executive type, if you will. And so I decided that I really needed to think about how did I become so passionate about that idea of a larger, more capacious sense of belonging in the world. And that, so it's the young people and their quest for understanding how can you live in the local, national, and global arena at the same time that interested me. I decided not to write an academic book, but a personal story. It's one person's journey of how do you get there. But it is something that all of us, who care not about building borders, but creating a sense of our humanity in the world. And it turns out that COVID crisis, as well as climate crisis, reminds us that this is not just a kind of pie-in-the-sky idea. We really need to figure out how to do this so that we got to chew gum and talk at the same time, (laughs) as I say. In the book, you cite an identification with the phrase, tolerance for contradictions and for ambiguity. But here we are sitting in a nation which seems uniquely ill-equipped to cope with ambiguity. What are you going to do both in the book and in, in life in general, helping Americans open their eyes to that? You know, when you ask that question, Max, I do think that how ironic it is that America is a nation of multiplicity. And yet, we want everything in binaries. So we want clarity and we want things that are black and white, if you will. We try to put things in either or kind of terms. And 
to some extent, having been born and raised in India and having studied Indian art and philosophy and culture, I actually feel that the Indian culture has this capacity to hold opposites together. Rather than thinking of them as but, you think of them as and. And I would say that we pride ourselves in having this idea of hyphenated identities. So we are Indian American or European American, although not so completely Asian American. And that idea of the duality or multiplicity should be seen as and and not but. So the current Asian crisis, for example, of uh, hate and racism, as it's also true with the African-Americans, is that we are somehow thinking that they're only one, but not both. Mm -hmm. So that Asians are more seen as Asian rather than American. And I think that we have to recognize that if anything, in this country, we have the capacity to think about multiplicity and hold them together. And so at the same time, I also think that we have a possibility to be a beacon in the world because we are an evolving nation. Every single person, an immigrant who comes to this country, and not only changes what it means to be American, along with to learn to be an American. So we really have to think about how to think about being American as not exclusively being Euro-American or a white American. And that is the capacity that we have to learn to cultivate as we try to make this nation a more perfect union. We all pin our hopes both on immigrants who come and enrich this country, but also, as you say, on younger people who on their iPhone are in touch with the rest of the world. You talk about cultural appropriation in the book. As someone whose life has entailed roots in more than one nation, what do you say to young people who are afraid of being accused of insensitivity when seeking to drink of other cultures? I have to say that I worry about that a lot. That on the one hand, I understand the issues of cultural appropriation, that when somebody takes something from another culture without being sensitive to the context, it creates a problem, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you really make people completely afraid of experimenting with other culture, exposing themselves to other culture, exploring other cultures, you, you would be a much poorer nation, I feel. In order to own your own culture, let's not close our eyes and ears to understanding and putting yourself in other cultures. So I do think that there is a fine line between cultural appropriation and cultural exploration. Those fifth graders from East Cleveland Public Schools, African-American kids, if they didn't explore anything of India, they wouldn't know anything about India. They were taking dance poses. They were trying to figure out how did that Nataraj guy actually created a center, mm -hmm. you know, in the sculpture. And we learned together. So I think that there is something about exploration, the Republic of Imagination, as Azar Nafisi, the great Iranian-American writer, has written about, 
I think we have to allow ourselves to open our world to other worlds, experiment, be there, create a sense of empathy, a word that isn't used very much in America, I feel. I think it's high time for us to give it much, much more credence in the way we live. Is part of the solution, people of authority, inviting others to be welcome in different cultural worlds? Yeah, that's the point that I think that what it does require is extreme sensitivity. When do you offend people? When do you actually join hands? When do you reflect on your own privilege and therefore go out of your way to make sure that you are aware that not everybody is coming from the same position of power and authority and privilege. That's going to be very important for people in the position of power. But it's also true for everybody, students on campuses, as well as leaders in institutions. You write about in the book, and you just mentioned globalism as a phenomenon feeling a bit of a hit these days with emerging nationalist and even nativist movements springing up around the globe. Do you think, as an historian, this is just a phase, it's a cyclical moment that will pass, or how do you conceive of it? You know, I think about that a lot because, on the one hand, I feel that the reason why people are scared of this kind of interdependent nature of the world we live in is because it feels scary to think that somehow your perch that you have built is going to be taken away. There are politicians and political leaders in many parts of the world, not just our own, that actually fan the flame of that notion that if somebody else comes in, your life is going to be taken away as you have known it. And that goes back to this kind of exclusive notion of who has the right to be here or any other place. I mean, in India, there are other issues as well, for example. My feeling is that because the crises that we are part of right now, COVID being one, climate being another, there are many others that are going to be part of us. I mean, pandemics are not going to be something that just happened once in a while. I think it reminds us again and again that we don't have an option but to think about our interdependence in relation to our independence. We will fight just because that's our natural tendency. It's sort of human tendency to say, if something new happens, something is happening outside of my control, I'm going to try to control my little perch more than ever. It's human nature. But the reality is going to have to be to recognize, and we have to teach our young people and students and everybody else, is that you have to live in both of those worlds at the same time but have a more nuanced understanding of when do you apply which lever. A young student of mine yesterday was asking me and said that, you know, we talk about locavore tradition in food. That is partly to address the issue of climate and not getting food transported from many different parts of the world. And I was saying that that's exactly it, to understand which lever to push when. When is it a local action? particularly appropriate. But remember the context. The context is global. Sometimes it's a global action that will have impact on the local. And it's the relational quality that I think we have to really push for. 
coincident with emergent national pride over the last few decades has been increased efforts to restitute cultural property. And I wanted to ask you about the disgraced dealer, Subhash Kapoor, who facilitated the plunder of countless monuments in Asia in a $100 million racket. And many of those objects have yet to find their way back to monuments and museums. How do you think the U.S. and Indian governments have fared in clamping down on the illicit trade in antiquities and in cultural heritage? Well, we have to recognize that in the art world, theft, looting, partly out of colonial practices, partly out of just sheer greed, has been part of our world for a long time. And we have sometimes wanted to avoid that, right? Mm -hmm. So that I personally think that historically in the last 40, 50 years, we focus too much on this kind of so-called universal or transcendent quality of art as if that justified whatever the means that were used to show the artwork. I think that now we are at a point where some notion of grievance that other people are asking for restitution of that objects is going to be part and parcel of where we are. But I would ask us to not be too simplistic in making judgments. In India, the government has not been pushing as hard as actually individual citizens that have begun to create a movement. And this movement is called the Indian Pride Project. And they are going after objects everywhere, making simplistic assumptions that every single object that's in the Western collection is somehow stolen and looted. And I personally feel that, yes, there are things that are looted. And if you prove that something is stolen, you have to return it. We did that at the Asia Society when I was there. It was proven that an object that was bought in an open market by Mr. Rockefeller, John D. III, and a scholar proved that it was in a museum and there was a police report. And I said, absolutely, we're going to send it back. However, to assume that every single object is stolen, that it is not about also trade, art objects have been traded also for a long, long time, and they've moved across borders for a long time. After all, let's not forget that you see some fantastic blue and white Yuan Dynasty ceramics, you know, 13th century ceramics in markets in Turkey, in mm -hmm. India. For the Rockefeller collection, for example, there's a beautiful object that was a Yuan dynasty platter that was in the collection, royal collection of Shah Jahan, who built Taj Mahal. And it came to him as a gift from Turkey. So those stories are also relevant for us to think about. And I would urge us to not just think about restitution in a simplistic way, but recognize also that some wrongs that have been historically perpetuated are going to have to be addressed in a serious way. Vishaka, I think it's noteworthy that India is not among the 23 nations that signed an MOU with the Department of State, which has a cultural property advisory committee that prevents the illicit importation of artifacts. 
Is that, to your knowledge, under discussion in New Delhi? Is it something that should happen so that the prospective concerns of protecting heritage are very much in mind? In fact, that question has two parts to that. One part is that India has a difficulty because India itself does not have strong heritage laws and protection within the country, Mm -hmm. unlike, let's say, China, which has a much stronger law. And at the same time, this independent group of the India Pride Project are pushing the government to actually have a stronger uh, position on this. Mm-hmm. The government at one point in the 70s actually pushed very hard. And as you know, the Norton Simon case of the Dancing Shiva, there are pieces in uh, in the UK that also were sent. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of those cases that happened in the 70s and 80s. But at the moment, I feel that the government is not pushing too hard partly because there's also other interest levels, right? The trade, the commerce with other countries that they're developing. But I wouldn't put it past them if there is, in fact, this kind of the ultra-nationalist movement that would push harder on that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there are, as you know, uh, because of Subhash Kapoor case in the U.S., there is very active movement to find stolen objects proven to be stolen, and therefore sending it back. The proven to be stolen standard, though, is a tough one, because obviously if something is looted from a temple or not from a monument that's been indexed and recorded, but perhaps not inventoried, it's impossible to know that it's been looted. It's tricky, right? No, it is tricky. But I think at the same time, for Western museums, especially American museums, where Themes have come through private hands, gifts, et cetera, et cetera. You do have to do some diligence, right, to say, what object can I send back? And is it going to go back to Mm -hmm. the place where it came from? I'm probably sounding like I'm talking from two sides of my mouth, but uh, that's partly because I do look at the perspective of the source country as well as the perspective of my adopted home uh, in the West. One of India's culture ministers, I don't know if he's still in office, raised the topic of following the path of Israel or Britain and having a legalized trade in antiquities, which caused a lot of people to be concerned. Is that something that's still in the air? It's not in the air. Mm -hmm. I actually, I talked to uh, the said cultural minister and also a number of other officials in the foreign ministry for a long time. And I actually said that, really look at Japan. Japan has probably some of the best laws for this, that if you have national treasures and you rank them as such, they must not leave ever, blah, blah, blah. Then you can have the cultural, important cultural property for which you can get the permission. And then they can have an open trade. Because the reality is that in India, there are so many things that stay in storages, temples and museums and other institutions They don't have the capacity to take care of it. And so that if you actually developed a very calibrated law and a calibrated process by which you allow people to have some trade and the profit from the trade should go, there should be some tax and it should go towards the preservation of cultural properties and have a law. 
and there was a lot of activity around this idea 10, 15 years ago, but I don't hear much about that now. One topic I'm always interested in, about a decade ago, the so-called Universal Museum Declaration was issued, which feels very retrograde in retrospect. What do you think is the right approach for collections built through colonial power to address the sins of the past? Is it object by object? Is it a more general global view? What's the solution you see for that? Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is to do away with the word Universal Museum or an encyclopedic museum. Let's recognize that these museums are museums of partial histories. They are accidental museums, Mm -hmm. depending on who collected what, when, and how. So as a colleague of mine pointed out in one of the conferences, he said, let's call them Wikipedia Museum, (laughs) which is that you are constantly learning and evolving your knowledge of the thing. And so I think the first thing I would say is get away from the idea that you're somehow creating the world and it's encyclopedic because we don't have enough knowledge of everything. And it's very much based on special fads or fashions, what have you. My feeling is that you do need to create multiple approaches and multiple stories. Now, how do you do that without overwhelming the visible presence of an object, especially in an art museum? It's a challenge, but I do think we have now facilities and various tools that are available to us, whether it's audio, whether it's through our own iPhones, but to really remind people that these objects have both specific histories of the original history, if you will, and the intent, but they also have history that goes over time. And that has to do with how did things get to the collection and be open about that. But first and foremost, it is to remind people that objects do have this dual function. And that is, they open your eyes to the world you never imagined. And they're also products of a time and a place. And they have a life that goes throughout its history. Vichaga, I have one last question. You and I met years ago as museum directors. And I think we're both watching how difficult that job has become this year. Not just COVID and Black Lives Matter, but also trustees being called to account. A whole variety of issues, funding, authority, who's in charge. Since we have the luxury of not being museum directors, (laughs) what if you were, what would you tell your board is the single most pressing issue facing museums today? When I think about our colleagues and friends Mm -hmm. who are still museum directors, I often feel relieved that I'm not a museum director right now. But I also feel that I have now this advantage of Mm -hmm. being both an insider and outsider. And at Columbia, we've actually been in the process of developing a big project called Politics of Visual Arts. And this is in a global context to look at issues of art making, art presenting, and art institutions. What I find that we do have to recognize is that on the one hand, if you look at polls, people still think that museums are places they trust. That trust is also now being questioned very seriously. Rather than justifying actions, let's be more reflective. 
and recognize that we may have to change practices that we have taken for granted. And part of it is, I feel, there's a multiplicity of interpretation of objects, restitution of objects when necessary. At the same time, recognize that people who have not had the voices need to have voices. Uh, so it's not just about exhibitions. It is not just about staff. It is not just about trustees, but it is all of it. And every step of the way, we need to be much more self-reflective and be mindful that we don't have all the answers and we're going to do what we can and we're going to continue to develop as we go. So it is really towards evolving for a more perfect institution. One place for those directors to start is to, next week, open your new book, World is Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings. Vishaka, thank you for making time today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Max. We've been speaking today with Dr. Vishaka Desai, Senior Advisor for Global Affairs to the President of Columbia University, Chair of the Committee on Global Thought, and Senior Research Scholar in Global Studies at the School of International and Public Affairs. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.